Ring out the bell for Christmas, played by the Edison Concert Band. Tis the season. Lights and tinsel line the streets, carols fill the airwaves, and an item that hasn't been seen since last January reappears on grocery store shelves. You may love manufactured milk carton eggnog, or you may loathe it every time it is inflicted upon you, but it bears little resemblance to the incredibly popular beverage of the 19th century, which was made with real eggs, unpasteurized milk, and, of course, booze. Eggnog was loved by many, including, reputedly, George Washington. We also have eggnog recipes from Presidents William Henry Harrison and Dwight Eisenhower. It was also given to the sick, including patients recovering from smallpox. And in 1826, eggnog inspired a famous riot among the cadets at West Point that nearly got future Confederate leader Jefferson Davis thrown out. On this special edition of Cocktail History, the story of eggnog, and we'll try out a few recipes. Welcome to Cocktail History, Episode 3, The Eggnog Riot Christmas Special. I'm your host, Sam Eilertson. Mixing eggs and booze goes back quite a long way. Domesticated chickens and alcoholic beverages have been widely available across Eurasia since classical times. It's only a matter of time before they ended up in the same glass. In a tavern in 17th century England, one could find a variety of egg drinks, including the flip, which consists of warm beer and an egg, often with the addition of spices and hard alcohol. Flips were often heated by means of a hot poker. Very fashionable in 17th century England was posset, a hot drink made with wine or ale, eggs, cream, sugar, and spices whipped into a froth. As part of her scheme to murder Duncan, Lady Macbeth knocks out his guards with poisoned posset. That which hath made them drunk hath made me bold. What hath quenched them hath given me fire. The doors are open, and the surfeited grooms do mock their charge with snores. I have drugged their possets, that death and nature do contend about them whether they live or die. A 1654 recipe for posset recommends simmering it until it acquires a consistency like cheese. Mm -mm -mm. Now, aren't you just dying to give that a try? If that hasn't ruined your appetite for eggnog, eggs weren't the only chicken product getting boozed up in the 1600s. A drink called cock ale was made by boiling a rooster in beer and then combining the resulting broth with raisins, dates, spices, and sherry. Egg drinks weren't exclusive to Europe either. Dutchman Johan Jacob Saar, who served as a soldier in Sri Lanka in the 1640s, reported drinking a beverage called masak, a mixture of palm wine, arak, eggs, and spices, and vinpearl, a similar concoction with the addition of citrons. Wanting to try out a few incarnations of eggnog, a few weeks ago, I decided to pay a visit to my friend and fellow cocktail enthusiast, Kevin Parker. Before we got into eggnogs, we decided to give its ancestor, the Ale Flip, a try. We were not exactly expecting to enjoy it. So this is from the 1862 Jerry Thomas's Bartender's Guide. Um, the recipe, as it's written, is put a quart of ale in a tin saucepan on the fire to boil. In the meantime, beat up the yolks of four with the whites of two eggs adding four tablespoons of brown sugar and a little nutmeg. Pour on the ale by degrees, beating up so as to prevent the mixture from curdling, then pour back and forward repeatedly from vessel to vessel, raising the hand to as great a height as possible, which process produces the smoothness and frothing essential to the quality of a good flip. This is excellent for a cold and from its fleecy appearance is sometimes designated a yard of flannel. 
For the beer, I selected Old Speckled Hen, an English ale that's tasty and easy to drink, figuring it might be a decent approximation of what you would get in an 18th century tavern. Kevin provided eggs that were fresh as could be. He and his wife have a chicken coop in the backyard. It's funny that they call it a yard of flannel. Yeah. <laughs> it probably has the consistency. Yeah. I'm not going to get any fresher eggs. These came out today. Awesome. <laughs> and then, uh, how, much, uh, how much brown sugar? Um, two two tablespoons. Seems awfully sweet. Yeah. Well, they, they like things sweet back in the 1800s. <laughs> sure. Cover up the taste of that horrible ale. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, we're going to mix these together yeah. and slowly add the boiling beer so that it doesn't curdle. Yep. Basically, tempering it. And then, we'll... and then, yeah, then we're going to do this pour back and forth. We'll probably make a little bit of a mess, but we'll do our best. <laughs> Ooh, it smells good. Yeah, it smells really good. Watch for foaming. So now we're figuring out the logistics of the flip here. Yeah, I think we have. So we're gonna pour it into one of these pewter mugs. Doesn't might be a little too much, but yeah. get most of it in there. All right, let's uh, do some flipping. There we go. <laughs> yeah, I'll give yeah. it a try. It smells good, actually. For a flannel blanket, it smells good. Yeah. Well, Jerry Thomas used to do this with flaming liquor, yeah, so uh, I'm glad I'm not doing it with that. I'm actually very spilling. glad there's candles on there. <laughs> what do you think? Should we uh, yeah. give it a try? Yeah, I'll split it in half. Sure. All right. There you go. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> huh. Not yeah. Yeah, I rather like that. Um, I think the old speckled hen is a good choice. Yeah, yeah, it pairs well here. It's it almost has a bready flavor to it, like yeah. But yeah, I think it's you a, don't really taste quite the egg nice. at all. Yeah, no. It just gives you a little bit of yeah. texture. Yeah, yeah, that's really what it's it's for here is the texture. Yeah, I would actually do that again. Yeah, I, yeah, I would actually drink this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm shocked by how much I like this drink, mm -hmm. given how disgusting it sounds. Well, you know, it's one of those <laughs> things that I've always looked through the. I've always looked through the book. Yep. It's one of those recipes you read and you're like, ah, there's no way I'm gonna. Yeah. I'm gonna do it. There's nothing. It's nothing sounded appealing about. Yeah. It. Hot beer and an egg. No. You know, not exactly yeah. the combination. You're yeah. For. But boy, after mm -hmm. being outside in the cold all day in the yep. winter, this is yep. great. <laughs> Where exactly eggnog arose is unclear. Although given that it's pretty similar to posset with hard alcohol replacing the wine and a milk replacing the cream, it's likely that someone in England made something like it at some point. However, it appears to have been popularized in the American colonies, and it is in America where the name was first used. Perhaps this is due to the wider availability of eggs and milk in the colonies. With widespread land ownership came lots of dairy. The online etymology dictionary records the first use of the word eggnog as being in 1775 America. The etymology is a matter of some dispute. The majority opinion seems to be that the nog in eggnog is short for noggin, which referred to a small cup or a measure of alcohol served in said cup. However, another possibility is that it was short for egg and grog, grog being the rum punch they served on British naval vessels. Supposedly, according to a story that seems to be all over the internet, I can't actually locate a source for it, George and Martha Washington served eggnog at a Christmas party in 1783, containing brandy, Jamaica rum, rye whiskey, and sherry, along with eggs, milk, and sugar, rested for several days. I don't know if this really happened, but I'd like to believe. The first recorded reference to eggnog appears to be a poem written around 1774 by a Maryland pastor and friend to Washington, John Boucher. Boucher wrote, quote, Fog i' the morn, or better still, eggnog, at night hot suppens, or in midday grog, my palate can regale. Despite his friendship with Washington, Boucher would soon be fleeing the colonies for England, as he was a staunch loyalist. 
Another early reference from the New Jersey Journal, March 26, 1788, refers to, quote, a young man with a cormorant appetite voraciously devoured last week at Connecticut Farms 30 raw eggs, a glass of eggnog, and another of brandy sling. I wonder how he felt the next morning. Later that year, an essay in Philadelphia's Independent Gazetteer warned against mixing liquors. Quote, there are so many different qualities and dispositions that intestine wars are never over. When wine and beer, punch and eggnog meet, instantly ensues a quarrel. This is advice that I'm sure the young man from the New Jersey Journal would have agreed with. Another early reference comes from 1790, and the source is a historical artifact in and of itself, the American Museum and Magazine. The American Museum was one of America's first literary magazines, and the first to print the proposed U.S. Constitution. It was established by Matthew Carey with startup funds from none other than the Marquis de Lafayette with the mission of promoting America's intellectual tradition as distinct from England's. George Washington gave the American Museum a wholehearted endorsement, writing that, quote, I believe the American Museum has met with extensive, I may say, universal approbation from competent judges, eminently calculated to disseminate political, agricultural, and other valuable information, conducted with taste, attention, and propriety. Contributors also included John Adams, Ben Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and Noah Webster. Such prestigious contributions did not make the magazine a commercial success, however, and it was only in print from 1787 to 1792. The September 1791 issue included a short satirical vignette about a retired sea captain trying and failing to adjust to life on land. The old captain won't leave his house if the wind isn't favorable, searches for a wife who is, quote, full-bowed and lean-abaft, and, quote, eggnog is his favorite liquor in the morning, grog at 11 o'clock, and such wine as he can afford after dinner. In 1795, an Irish writer named Isaac Weld toured America and Canada, meeting Washington and Jefferson and canoeing around the Canadian wilderness with Indian guides. His account of his travels were widely published in Europe, translated into French, German, and Dutch. He describes how on a particularly cold morning in Baltimore, it was a mere 7 degrees Fahrenheit at daybreak, the Americans took care to fortify themselves. Quote, the American travelers, before they pursued their journey, took a hearty draught each, according to their custom, of eggnog. Eggnog-like drinks were not exclusive to the English-speaking world either. A Mexican eggnog called rompope, which often includes ground almonds and citrus, supposedly dates back to the 1600s, when, at least as the story goes, it was made by Sister Eduviges from the convent of Santa Clara in Puebla, Mexico. The Dutch make a drink called advocat from egg yolks, brandy, and sugar, while the Peruvians make an eggnog-like drink called biblia with the Peruvian brandy pisco and port, and Puerto Rico's version of eggnog, caquito, is made with coconut milk in place of dairy. Certainly by the 19th century, eggnog had become a staple of American drinking. Louisiana historian Harnett Kane described eggnog as, quote, the pre-war dry martini of the South, while legendary bartender Jerry Thomas wrote in the mid-19th century that eggnog, loved around the country, was a favorite in all seasons in the North. When, in 1862, Jerry Thomas published the world's first bar manual, it contained no less than six eggnog recipes. The early 19th century marked the emergence of the single-serving liquor-based cocktail, as opposed to large-batch punches, and the cocktail shaker came to be, so ice-cold eggnog came into fashion. However, a warm eggnog-style beverage called Tom and Jerry was popular for much of the 19th and into the early 20th century. It actually inspired the name of the later cat-and-mouse cartoon. Jerry Thomas tried to claim credit for inventing the Tom and Jerry, but it appears to have originated in the 1820s, before Thomas was born, possibly invented by British writer Pierce Egan to promote a novel and play of his about characters named, you guessed it, Tom and Jerry.
19th century temperance literature, the morality tales written to scare people away from alcohol, is chock full of stories about the misdeeds of people drunk on eggnog. Indeed, eggnog did manage to inspire a famous riot at West Point in 1826, which brings us to the titular story of this episode. The U.S. Army of the early 19th century was not quite a world-class professional force, and in its early days, West Point was not exactly the finest military academy. James Agnew, who wrote a slightly fictionalized minute-by-minute account of the riot, described admissions at West Point thus, quote, Originally, admission standards had been extremely loose, and cadets were admitted at very young ages and were often illiterate. But, commendably, the social status or wealth of the applicants' families was not a big factor in admissions. By 1826, however, admission standards had become more rigorous. Entering cadets were required to pass an oral examination demonstrating at least passable understanding of arithmetic and an ability to read and write the English language. They also had to be in good health, taller than 4 foot 9 inches, and sound of limb. After the War of 1812, Congress decided to get West Point up to speed, and in 1817, Colonel Sylvanus Thayer, known to history as the father of West Point, became the superintendent. Thayer introduced a rigorous curriculum and strict disciplinary standards, and at West Point created the nation's first engineering school. He banned alcohol, tobacco, card playing, and dueling, and instituted a rigorous daily schedule to keep the cadets too busy to get themselves into trouble. However, many cadets still managed to steal away to local taverns, like Benny Havens or Martins. Among the miscreants frequently at Benny Havens was, of all people, Edgar Allan Poe. Believe it or not, Poe spent a semester at West Point in 1830. Poe had joined the army needing money. He had become estranged from the wealthy foster father who had taken him in after his mother's death. Two years into his five-year enlistment, Poe wanted out, but couldn't find a way to end the enlistment early without the permission of his foster father, who was doing his best to disown Poe. Poe enrolled in West Point, but when reconciliation with his foster father appeared impossible, he proceeded to sit in the tavern all semester until he had gotten himself drummed out of the army. The time was not wasted, though. Before he left, 131 of his fellow cadets pitched in a $1.25 each to help him publish a book of poems, which he dedicated to the cadets of West Point. So don't let anyone tell you crowdfunding is a new phenomenon. Getting back to 1826, however, in that year, one of the chief miscreants was Jefferson Davis. Yes, that's THE Jefferson Davis, future secessionist and president of the Confederate States of America. Davis seems to have been a bit of a rascal, as one might expect for a future leader of an insurrection to preserve slavery. He had already been court-martialed for getting caught at Benny Havens, and had also spent several weeks in the hospital after tumbling down a cliff in another drunken incident. He had escaped expulsion largely because the officer in charge of his dormitory, Captain Ethan Allen Hitchcock, was a family friend. Davis may also have lit the fuse of a live grenade in the class of an instructor who picked on him. Apparently the grenade was suddenly lit while no one was looking. Davis was the first to spot it and calmly asked the instructor what he should do with this lit grenade. When the panicked teacher told the students to run for their lives, Davis threw the grenade out the window where it exploded harmlessly and no one was injured, making it look like Davis had saved the day. The crime was never pinned on Davis, but it sounds pretty suspicious. Now, until 1826, cadets had been allowed to drink on the 4th of July and Christmas, but after a particularly raucous 4th of July in which the commandant had been seized and carried around in an undignified manner by drunk cadets, Colonel Thayer banned alcohol even on holidays. 
But as teenagers inevitably will do, the cadets took the prohibition as a challenge and began to work on a plan to smuggle alcohol onto campus and have a grand Christmas party with mutton, toast, and of course, eggnog. Davis and some friends tried to acquire the necessities from Benny Havens a few days before Christmas, but apparently they were unsuccessful. Another group of students bribed a soldier to let them take a boat across the Hudson River in the dead of night. They acquired Pennsylvania whiskey from Martin's Tavern and stashed it away on West Point's grounds. Meanwhile, others purchased spices and mutton from Benny Havens and milk and eggs from local farmers and purloined sugars and foodstuffs from the mess hall. Cadet Robert E. Lee, yes, that's THE Robert E. Lee, was invited to the illicit party but declined. Lee appears to have been a bit of a geek. As a 20-year-old cadet, Lee was made an assistant professor of mathematics, although that basically just meant glorified TA. Suspecting something was afoot, Thayer ordered the dormitory monitors to keep a close watch the officers had heard that there was enough liquor in West Point's North Barracks to, quote, float a man-o'-war. There were two dormitory barracks on campus, North Barracks and South Barracks. The officers living in North Barracks were Captain Hitchcock and Lieutenant William Thornton. Hitchcock and Thornton patrolled the halls until 2 a.m., but nothing seemed to be going on. The festivities at first proceeded quietly enough to avoid detection. In a few dormitory rooms in North Barracks, with a few dozen students quaffing eggnog, enjoying mutton, toast, and conversation. The first sign of trouble came when Charles Whipple, an older cadet who served as basically the RA for the second floor of North Barracks, got back from a hall patrol to find his own door had been barred from the outside meaning that somebody was trying to lock him in his room. He heard voices in room number five and burst in to find Jefferson Davis leading a number of very drunk students in song. Whipple, it should be noted, was older than the others because he was one of the worst students at West Point and had repeatedly been held back for poor grades, so nobody had a lot of respect for him. He demanded to know who had barred his door, but was scared back to his room when the cadets within threatened him with violence if he tried to break up their celebration. Then, around 4 a.m., Captain Hitchcock woke to sounds of a loud commotion. He stormed into room 28, where he found cadets dead drunk, many of them trying to hide themselves under blankets, while others were downright belligerent. One cadet tried to slip out of the room with a blanket draped over himself. When Hitchcock blocked his way and yanked off the cover, the young man beneath held a cap over his face to conceal his identity. Hitchcock broke up the party, but didn't go out of his way to find the alcohol that he knew was present. It seems he just intended to give the cadets a scolding and get back to bed. However, Cadet Billy Murdoch was not going to let him sleep peacefully. After Hitchcock had left the room, Murdoch declared, Gentlemen, we'll kill the son of a bitch, I tell you. Fetch John Stalker and Billy Fitzgerald. Get your dirks and bayonets, boys, and pistols if you have them. Before this night is over, Hitchcock will be dead. After that ensued an outburst of blind destructiveness that could only come from a large group of drunk, hyper-masculine young men who had a whole lot of pent-up rage from the strict regimen of the military academy. Hitchcock was soon roused by the noise of revelry again, and walked out of his room to find a cadet throwing up in the hallway. He then entered room number 5 and found a bigger and drunker party than what he had just found in 28. Just after he entered, Jefferson Davis ran into the room and shouted, Put away the grog, boys! Hitchcock's coming! Hitchcock told Davis to go back to his room under arrest. Davis complied and promptly passed out, which saved him from being involved in the riot itself. His roommate, Walter Guion, on the other hand, left the room armed with a pistol. Hitchcock found the cadets in number five too drunk and defiant to discipline them, and returned to his room to wake up his younger brother, who was also a cadet. Lieutenant Thornton, the other officer in North Barracks, had by now been woken up by the ruckus too. Leaving his room, he found himself staring down a saber-wielding Billy Fitzgerald. 
When Thornton ordered him to surrender his weapon, Fitzgerald made threatening gestures, repeatedly slashed the wood floor, and stormed away saber in hand. Thornton then heard the sound of a horribly discordant version of the reveille from outside. More eggnog-soaked cadets had broken into the guardhouse and stolen the fife and drum. Thornton started to head downstairs when he was knocked to the ground by a heavy wooden log thrown at him from a cadet waiting in ambush in the stairwell. Thornton wasn't badly hurt, but decided it would be best to pretend the log had knocked him out cold until he had the opportunity to escape. Meanwhile, Hitchcock found himself besieged in his room, while rampaging cadets tried to beat down the door, and even fired a shot through it. When he opened the door, determined to confront them or die trying, they fled and concealed their faces. Another cadet accosted him with a bayonet, but then backed down. Making his way to the guardhouse, he told the guard to fetch the calm here, meaning the commandant. However, drunken cadets overheard him and thought he had called for the bombardiers. The bombardiers were a unit of enlisted artillerymen stationed at West Point. The cadets regarded the bombardiers as low-class scum, while bombardiers in turn saw the cadets as pompous fuckboys. In other words, the idea of the bombardiers being brought in to put down the riot filled the already out-of-control cadets with piss and vinegar. At this point, windows were being smashed, shots were being fired, the Reveille drum had been broken, and cadets were throwing up eggnog and mutton all over the barracks. Now the rumor was spreading that the bombardiers were coming to beat them all into submission. The drunk cadets started yanking those that hadn't participated up to this point out of their beds and telling them to arm themselves while proceeding to smash everything in North Barracks that was there to smash. The aforementioned Billy Murdoch stood outside the door keeping a sharp eye out for approaching bombardiers. Eventually one enlisted soldier did show up and was set upon by Murdoch. It turned out he was only there because another cadet was paying the soldier to do his laundry. At 5.45am, the chaos was interrupted by the arrival of the actual Reveille players. Despite the fact that the drum was broken and the drunk cadets were trying to throw things at them, the Reveille players were determined to do their duty. The drummer fetched his own drum and the Reveille sounded in the midst of the chaos, calling everyone to the daily morning assembly. At this point, all that training and discipline started to kick in. The majority of the cadets who had not partaken at the eggnog or been part of the riot began to assemble and stand at attention for roll call. The rioters began to join them, hoping to get themselves out of a bad situation and maybe even conceal their participation, though a lot of them were visibly drunk and some bloody or without shoes or carrying weapons they weren't supposed to have. One can only imagine the scene of all these teenage boys sheepishly standing at attention while some of their comrades, now visible in the rising sun, were still throwing logs through windows, running around swinging bayonets, or throwing up. Two particularly drunk cadets hugged one another while alternately laughing and crying throughout the whole roll call. After they were dismissed, most of the cadets started trying to clean themselves and their barracks up, although some continued to drink. Breakfast did much to sober them up. One fight broke out, and one rascal tried to pour hot coffee on his table mates, but for the most part, things were settling down. Colonel Thayer had everything proceed as normal, including the Christmas church service, which went on mostly without incident. One troublemaker tried to disrupt things and start a chant, but nobody followed his lead. Agnew describes the scene in North Barracks thusly, quote, those in North Barracks were appalled at the destruction they encountered in the corridors. In the stairwell windows, hardly an unbroken pane remained, and from a few the entire sashes had been ripped. Dark, still damp trails of blood led from window ledges to floor, where bare hands had been cut in the destruction of windows. In the stairwells, segments of banister had been removed, and huge nicks hacked into the curved railing surface by edged weapons. In one place between the second and third floors, a four-foot section of banister had been ripped from the steps, creating an extremely hazardous condition. A careless cadet could easily have slipped through the opening and fallen two floors to the hallway below. Debris of one form or another, chiefly firewood, metal drinking cups, items of cadet equipment, and smashed lanterns were strewn along the corridor. 
Throughout the whole building, the smell of raw gunpowder and other unpleasant odors, vomit, sour milk, stale rum, penetrated the air. Not a few cadets on their way to the assembly area paused to look at doors which had been beaten inward or otherwise defaced by blows from blunt heavy instruments. Several cadets anxiously wondered whether the inhabitants of the rooms had survived these obviously vicious onslaughts. Most were appalled at the destruction and debris. Yet, despite the impressive level of destruction, somehow no one had been killed or seriously injured. The damage was assessed at $168.83, which even accounting for inflation was really not that bad. Thayer decided to have everything proceed as normal for the next few weeks, while opening a commission of inquiry and calling anyone even remotely suspected of being involved to testify. The commission found that at least 70 students had taken part in the drinking and rioting, which put Thayer in a bit of a pickle. Expelling 70 students, many of them from wealthy and powerful families, would have been a serious blow to West Point's reputation and some in Congress already thought the school was a waste of taxpayer dollars. On the other hand, giving out slaps on the wrist would badly diminish his respect and sense of authority over the cadets. In the end, he opted to formally charge 19 of the worst offenders. Jefferson Davis, because he had not been part of the actual riot, was not charged. Despite the fact that the worst punishment possible was expulsion from the academy and dishonorable discharge, the cadets were given formal military tribunals, and many mounted spirited defenses. All those charged were found guilty, but in many cases the court recommended that the sentence of expulsion be commuted. President John Quincy Adams personally reviewed the results of the tribunal, and commuted many of the sentences according to the court's recommendation. In the ultimate I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed letter, he wrote to the West Point cadets, quote, The confirmation of so many sentences of dismission from the academy of young men for whom their country had a right to expect better things is an act of imperious though painful duty. The private who had let students take the boat across the river to Martin's Tavern was sentenced to a month's hard labor with no whiskey ration. Of course, then as now, privilege pays its wages. Had the rioters been enlisted men, I'm sure whippings and perhaps even firing squads would have been involved, while slaves were killed for far, far lesser offenses. A few decades later, North Barracks would be torn down and rebuilt, this time with a design that prevented congregation to make riots more difficult. And these days, West Point cadets are sent home for the holidays, so chances are there will never be another West Point eggnog riot. In honor of the cadets at West Point, Kevin and I prepared a traditional eggnog, using the recipe from the Jerry Thomas Bartender's Guide. Unfortunately, we did not have any mutton to accompany it with. Yeah, so this is the Jerry Thomas eggnog recipe. So we have a tablespoon of fine white sugar dissolved in a tablespoon of water. Um, we're gonna put an egg in here, a whole egg. We're gonna put in two ounces of brandy. And, uh, and we're also gonna put in an ounce of Santa Cruz rum. So this is a type of rum that doesn't exist anymore. Um, so we're gonna make our own substitute by combining uh, Smith & Cross, which is a very funky Jamaican old fashioned style with um, a more modern, cleaner rum, which in this case is Havana Club Añejo. Um, first the sugar mix. Yep. And then we're gonna put in the whole whole egg. Just, we're gonna crack that right in there. Um, now we got two ounces of cognac going in there. And now we've got an ounce of this Santa Cruz rum, so I would suggest Probably two, two part, probably two parts Havana to one part Smith and Cross, because Smith and Cross has a really strong flavor that will kind of take over the drink if you're not okay, careful. Sure. Yep. Looks good. Great. Um, and then we have it says a third of a tumbler full of milk. Tumbler's an eight ounce glass, so we want about you know between two and three ounces. Yep. All right. We're gonna give this a good shake. Yeah, you wanna, with something like this, you really wanna get the egg yolk pulverized. Ooh, beautiful. Uh, strained? Uh, yep. 
Oh, that looks great. It's nice and foamy. Got the nutmeg there. That's Cheers. a. That glass is an 1860s um, Horn of Plenty sandwich. Wow. Uh, sandwich That's amazing. <laughs> Also called Comet was the pattern, yeah. but here you go, cheers. Hmm. Well, that's really good. Yeah, yeah, this is excellent. Well, very, very thick, very creamy, mm -hmm. lots of foam, um, but the the uh, flavor of the rum really comes through still. Even even when we only used about a, a third of an ounce of Smith and Cross, you can taste the Smith and Cross. It has that mm. funky hogoey flavor. Mm -hmm. The consistency is right too. Yep. It doesn't have that thick carrageen kind of right. You know, processed yeah. eggnog that we're accustomed yeah. to buying in the store. Yep. Oh yeah, that's the way it should be. Well, that's a simple recipe too. Yeah. Happy with the original Jerry Thomas recipe, Kevin and I decided to try a variant with sherry. So this is Jerry Thomas's sherry eggnog, which is basically the same as the last eggnog we made, but instead of the cognac and rum, we're gonna do four ounces of Oloroso sherry. We're using Lustau Oloroso da Nuno. Um, so this is a tablespoon of sugar dissolved in a tablespoon of cold water. Then we're gonna crack an egg in there. We're gonna add four ounces of sherry and about two to three ounces of milk. And um, sherry and milk seems to be a a, a common. Mm. Looking through some of the old, mm. you know, some of the old things, yep. really, sherry and milk seems to be a common yep. combination, mm. which you wouldn't really. Yeah. <laughs> Here you go. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Like it as much as the original version. It's, it's, no, it's, the rum. I think yeah. the rum is what we are more accustomed to mm -hmm. for eggnog. Yeah, it doesn't block out the flavor of the egg as much. I, right. I feel like I'm tasting the egg more because the sherry isn't as strong of a flavor. And the nutmeg doesn't go as well with the sherry as it does yeah. with, the, with the rum. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I would say if you want to make Jerry Thomas's eggnog, stick to the, uh, stick to the brandy rum. rum version. Yeah. The egg flip with the beer, you don't even know there's egg in there. You have to, somebody hmm. would have to tell you that there's an egg in there. Right. This, yeah. you're kind of Yeah, this, this one, you're, you're, you're aware very of. aware that yeah. the egg's there. Yep. 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 Military men certainly continued to appreciate the beverage, though. William Henry Harrison, general and very briefly president, has an eggnog that bears his name. Harrison became famous for the conquest of the Old Northwest, the area now known as the Rust Belt. To make room for white settlers, the Americans found ways to get Indians off their land, and Harrison used the classic method of divide and conquer. He would bribe, trick, or intimidate the leaders of a particular tribe into selling their land. Getting them to sign on the dotted line often involved liquid lubrication in the form of whiskey. These compromised leaders would often claim land actually inhabited by other tribes and sign it over to the Americans, which the U.S. Army would then enforce. Facing aggressive American expansion, many of these Indian tribes began to join together under the Shawnee leader Tecumseh. Harrison gained war hero status for defeating Tecumseh's forces at the Battle of Tippecanoe in 1811. The next year, the War of 1812 broke out, and the British supported Tecumseh, seeing him as a buffer against a possible American threat to Canada. At the Battle of the Thames, Harrison defeated a combined force of British and Shawnee in one of the most important battles of the war. Tecumseh was killed and his people forced to flee to the other side of the Mississippi River, and America's conquest of the Old Northwest was complete. After the war, Harrison had a stint in politics, culminating by serving as America's envoy to Simone Bolivar's government in Gran Colombia, before retiring to a farm in Ohio. He briefly operated a distillery before deciding he considered selling liquor immoral. In 1840, Harrison ran for president on the Whig Party ticket, with John Tyler as his running mate and the slogan, Tippy Canoe and Tyler Too. But they had another slogan, a bit less famous to history, the Log Cabin and Cider Ticket. 
It all began with a very bad attempt at a smear. Trying to dismiss him as a provincial old fart, a Democratic newspaper declared that if you gave Harrison a barrel of hard cider and a pension, he would be content to sit in his log cabin and while away his days without concern for politics. Harrison embraced the would-be attack line and declared himself the log cabin and cider candidate, running against the effete and plutocratic Martin Van Buren. Although he actually came from a pretty wealthy background, the Democrats had accidentally made Harrison an emblem of the common man. Whig Congressman Charles Ogle attacked Van Buren for eating French food and drinking champagne on taxpayers' dime, while Harrison dined on hard cider, hog, and hominy, hominy being the ground corn used in grits. At Harrison's campaign rallies, free cider was doled out liberally to voters. Then as now, Americans tend to vote for the person they'd rather have a beer, or in this case, a cider with, and Harrison was elected. However, he probably would have been better off staying in his log cabin with his cider. A few weeks after inauguration, he fell ill with pneumonia. The story is that he caught it while giving an excessively long and boring inauguration speech on a cold, wet day, although that is probably not the case. It was some three weeks after inauguration before he got sick. His doctors prescribed brandy, along with snakeweed, leeches, and opium, but nothing worked. Harrison died on his 32nd day in office. It's unclear how fond Harrison actually was of hard cider, given his aversion to selling whiskey. By all accounts, he was not much of a drinker, though not a teetotaler either. He drank little on his own, and in company only so much as was polite. So Harrison may never have actually drank the eggnog that bears his name. Nevertheless, in the Jerry Thomas 1862 cocktail book appears General Harrison's Eggnog, which Thomas promises was a favorite of Harrison's and is loved on the Mississippi River. General Harrison's Eggnog consists of hard cider and egg and sugar shaken with ice, making it really more of a cider flip than an eggnog. Uh, let's see, I'd like to try General Harrison's, which is the... Um, oh, with the cider. Apple cider. Yeah. Yep. You know, we're probably going to find out that there's a reason that everybody drinks the rum egg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is one egg, one and a half teaspoons of sugar, uh, some ice, and eight ounces approximately of hard cider, and you just shake it up and serve it. So we're a little skeptical of this recipe, but we'll see how it comes out. And then, uh, All right, so we got an egg going in there. Now we're going to put in... Oh, we need Let's eight see. ounces? Yeah, we need about eight ounces. Right. This is, we're using a Down East unfiltered cider, which is probably my favorite cider out there. Yes, it's, it's foaming pretty seriously as we shake it, as you would imagine with carbonated hard cider. No nutmeg on this, correct? No. Mm. Well, it looks nice, actually. Yeah, cheers. Yeah, it paid mostly just tastes like thick cider. cider. Yep. Yeah. Yep, the egg's mostly adding texture rather than flavor. Yeah. Um, it's not bad. Actually, you know, it's funny because one of my biggest complaints about cider is that it always feels very thin. Yep. There's not a lot of residual proteins in yep. it, so it always feels thin. Yep. And this kind of gets, yeah. it gets rid of that. Yeah, it might actually, it might, it, <laughs> it might, it might, it might be an improvement on the cider. Um, yeah, I definitely like, like it more than I suspected I would, yeah, given the too. ingredients. I mean, there's not much to it. I mean, essentially, it's, it's decast yep. uh, cider yep. with a little bit of thicker. Yep. That's also a very good cider. Yeah. I yeah, I still probably like the traditional eggnog better, but, um, but, but it's I don't not bad. I those in the same. No, they're very different. Very yep. Different, yeah. yep. I don't put them in the same mm -hmm. pot. That, to me, is just a good way to drink cider. Yep. A far more interesting eggnog comes from Texas, specifically the Republic of Texas. Texas, you may recall, was controlled by Spain and then, when Mexico gained independence, by Mexico. 
However, in the 1820s, it had only a few thousand Mexican settlers, along with quite a few Comanche Indians, and it was right over the border from America's newly purchased Louisiana Territory. Anglo-American settlers began to arrive and quickly outnumbered Mexicans, despite the Mexican government efforts to ban American immigration. They brought slaves with them, and when Mexico banned slavery in 1828, the American Texians, as they were then called, largely ignored the ban. In 1833, General Antonio López de Santa Ana came to power in Mexico, dubbing himself the Napoleon of the West. Santiano gained a day away, Santiano. Santiano gained a day along the plains of Mexico. Mexico, Mexico, away, Santiano. Santa Ana began consolidating power within what had been a fairly decentralized Mexican state. Rebellions broke out in many regions that wanted to maintain autonomy, including the Yucatan, the Rio Grande region, and Texas. American volunteers poured into Texas, promised free land in exchange for service. Thus came the famous Battle of the Alamo, and then, a few months later, Santa Ana's crushing defeat at the Battle of San Jacinto. Texas had gained independence, but the United States, wary of conflict with Mexico, declined to claim the territory, and thus the Republic of Texas was born. After the defeat, Santa Ana was deposed from power in Mexico, but was soon back in after leading Mexican forces against a French invasion known as the Pastry War. Tensions between Mexico and the Republic of Texas were soon ratcheting up. The territory between the Rio Grande and Nueces rivers was disputed. The Mexicans and Texians launched a series of retaliatory cross-border raids against one another, which cost a lot of lives without accomplishing much of anything. One such raid was the Mier expedition, in which some 300 Texians defied an order to retreat and captured the Mexican town of Ciudad Mier. What the Texians did not know was that there was a 3,000-man Mexican army in the immediate vicinity. On Christmas Day, 1842, the Mexicans attacked the Texians at Mier, and after holding out for one day, they surrendered. The Texian prisoners were marched toward Mexico City. Fearing they would be put to death, they made a run for it. They then proceeded to get lost in the Mexican desert with little food and water, and almost all of them, 176 in total, were recaptured quickly. Santa Ana wanted all the escapees put to death, but eventually softened his position and said, okay, I'm just going to kill one out of every 10 of them. Santa Ana had perhaps gotten the idea from the ancient Roman practice of decimation, in which one out of every 10 soldiers of a disgraced legion would be killed. The question then was how would the unfortunate 17 prisoners be chosen? Colonel Domingo Huerta put 176 beans in a jar, 159 white beans and 17 black beans. He had the prisoners pick beans blindfolded, and those who picked the black beans faced the firing squad. The remaining Texians were marched to Perotti Prison in Veracruz. Prison life was tough and the prisoners needed a pick-me-up. Coming up was April 21st, the anniversary of the Battle of San Jacinto, and thus Independence Day for the Republic of Texas. The Texians managed to scrape together a little celebration. They bribed the guards to smuggle them the ingredients for eggnog. But this wasn't any old eggnog. General Thomas Green wrote that, quote, We purchased seven gallons of vino mezcal and as many of asses milk. 30 dozen eggs, a large loaf of sugar, and appropriated all of our cooking utensils and water jars to the compounding of eggnog, and such eggnog as never before was seen or drank under the 19th degree of north latitude. 
Colonel Fisher, Captain Reese, and Lieutenant Clark beat up the eggs. The old sailing master Leon pounded the sugar, which operation he accompanied with one of his best yarns. Dan stood by and was particularly eloquent in singing his favorite ditties, Long Long Ago and The Soldier's Tear, while I presided over the synthetical operation of stirring in the requisite ingredients. Mezcal and donkey milk eggnog does not sound too appetizing to me, although David Wandrich gave it a try and assures us it is quite good. Substituting raw cow's milk for ass's milk, which is, after all, rather hard to come by in this century. Green and his comrades were finally released by Santa Ana in 1844. The next year, the United States annexed Texas, and thus inherited Texas's border dispute with Mexico. But at stake was more than a border dispute. Mexico wanted Texas back, and America wanted California. Soon, both countries had armies in the disputed territory between the Rio Grande and the Nueces. Skirmishes broke out, and war was on. It did not go well for Mexico. Santa Ana really does not compare favorably to Napoleon. Oh, have you heard the latest news? Leave away, Santiano. The Yankees, they took Veracruz all on the plains of Mexico. So we'll heave her up and away we'll go. Heave away, Santiano. Soon Mexico City had fallen, and Mexico had to give up not just Texas, but California, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. The Mexican War was a proving ground for many future Civil War generals, including Ulysses S. Grant, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, Ambrose Burnside, and George McClellan, who, judging by his diary of the war, indulged in eggnog pretty frequently during the campaign. On December 31st, 1846, he writes that, quote, Colonel Thomas turned out some whiskey to Gibson for an eggnog. Before he arrived, the eggnog was gone. I have some indistinct ideas of my last sensible moments being spent in kneeling on my bed and making an extra eggnog on the old mess chest. I don't recall whether I drank it or not, but as the pitcher was empty the next morning, I rather fancy that I must have done so. Some 15 years later, Abraham Lincoln, who had been an ardent opponent of the imperialistic Mexican War, would turn to McClellan to lead the Army of the Potomac. McClellan, a very meticulous planner, proved good at building and training an army, but far worse at leading it in battle. In 1861, McClellan's army suffered a relatively minor but very humiliating defeat at the Battle of Ball's Bluff. More than 500 Union troops were captured, among them Lieutenant William C. Harris, who wrote that the Union men managed to enjoy Christmas in captivity rather well. Quote, Christmas closed with much quiet enjoyment. We had the usual pastimes, cards, backgammon, checkers, and the inseparable concomitant of Christmas sports, eggnog. If, in the antebellum period, eggnog often turns up in the stories of military men, an interesting trend occurs in the late 19th century, when eggnog became quite common in medical literature. Eggnog, with its alcohol content reduced, was often recommended as an easy-to-quaff, calorie- and protein-packed milkshake for convalescent patients with a poor appetite. I'm not sure eggnog with raw eggs is what I want when I'm sick, but it does make some amount of sense. In 1865, in the Transactions of the American Medical Association, Dr. Joseph Toner writes of nursing a patient recovering from smallpox back to health, quote, I was called to a woman laboring under an attack of confluescent smallpox who had been treated by another physician. I found her so exhausted that she could not reply to questions in tones audible enough to be heard. This was living, no, not living, dying, on toast and water, arrowroot and gruel. I at once ordered eggnog and directed her to be given a glass every two hours. On my second visit, which was about 24 hours from the first, improvement was manifest. She was able to speak so as to be heard. Between my two visits, she had 12 glasses of eggnog. This treatment was continued day after day until she was able to take other food. The 1895 Journal of Practical Medicine recommends eggnog for patients needing nourishment and remarks that cold eggnog is one of the few things that patients with a high fever will be willing to take. 
This continued into the 20th century, with medical and nursing journals as late as the 1930s referring to patients that had lost too much weight being given eggnog. By this point, the golden age of eggnog had clearly passed, and it was becoming more and more a specifically Christmas beverage. Prohibition no doubt dealt a blow to America's eggnog traditions, although it certainly didn't snuff them out. A 1921 column in Good Housekeeping magazine ended with, quote, Like all forbidden fruits, eggnog now seems particularly attractive. Forbidden fruit is now the most popular tree in the national nursery. After Prohibition, one can find eggnog re-emerging in advertising. For instance, in the December 1936 issue of Life magazine, a Four Roses bourbon ad tells readers, quote, Four Roses is the only whiskey that should grace your Christmas eggnog. And the ad includes a large batch recipe for eggnog and a color photo of eggnog in an ornate silver punch bowl. A Seagram's ad in the same issue also features an eggnog recipe and promises Seagram's is, quote, for a merrier Christmas this year and in 1956 too. But by 1956, a very different beverage called eggnog would appear. Sometime around 1950, the now familiar non-alcoholic mass-produced eggnog appeared. It's not clear exactly when or where it first popped up, but by 1951, the New York Times had noted that bottled non-alcoholic eggnog was available. An early brand was Borden's. Borden's eggnog! Hey, wait for us! Yes, sirree, kids. You'll go for Borden's eggnog, ready to drink right from the carton. Made with lots of eggs, milk, and sweet cream. Tastes even better than a milkshake. Wow! Borden's eggnog! Mmm, Borden's! Very big on flavor! A Borden's ad in the December 1952 issue of Life magazine read, quote, Grandma says eggnog is as much a part of the holidays as holly, tinsel, peppermint canes, and Santa Claus. Dad proclaims it the friendliest holiday beverage of all, and Mother agrees, but she makes sure she gets Borden's eggnog. She tried Borden's last Christmas and found there was no need to go beating eggs and whipping cream for eggnog, not when it's so easy to serve Borden's ready-mixed eggnog, a rich, creamy blend of wholesome dairy products. Try Borden's. See how easy, how good. Order in advance to make sure you get Borden's eggnog, non-alcoholic. Hey, don't you like to dance? Yeah, but I like Borden's eggnog better. <laughs> you will too, kids. And this is the only time you can get it. So ask your mom to buy some right away. Borden's eggnog. Very big on flavor. So by here on out, liquor ads with recipes for homemade eggnog begin to disappear. Instead, they recommended mixing their liquors with eggnog mix. Soon, eggnog is getting used in all sorts of ways that would make Jerry Thomas roll in his grave. A 1955 issue of Life has an ad for an absolutely horrid-sounding fruit cocktail eggnog pie while a 1956 Aunt Jemima ad suggests using eggnog instead of milk in your pancakes. Oof. There was someone in the 1950s who still liked the good old-fashioned eggnog, though, and he was a good old-fashioned guy. On Christmas morning, Dwight and Mamie Eisenhower attend a service at the Columbia University Chapel in New York. Later, at their home, the Eisenhowers join grandson Dwight David Jr. under the mistletoe, before gathering round the tree with the rest of the family. The president-elect son, John, is still in Korea with the army, but 11-month-old Susan finds grandpa almost as much fun. Okay, seriously, what is it with famous generals in eggnog? He even left us a recipe. It's pretty simple, with bourbon being the only alcoholic ingredient, as one might expect of a guy who reportedly liked to grill his own steaks on the White House lawn. However, it requires patience. He admonishes the reader to whip together sugar, eggs, and bourbon very slowly. That's underlined. He says it should take 30 minutes, which is absolutely bonkers. Anyway, some folks from the National Journal gave it a try and gave it a big thumbs up, so it's good to know that Ike did have some good taste. Since Eisenhower's day, sales of that prepackaged eggnog have quadrupled. America loves its eggnog, although it would perhaps be more accurately termed egg-ishnog, since the FDA only requires that eggnog contain 1% egg yolk solids to be labeled as such. 
I'm sure college kids adding Jim Beam to store-bought eggnog and topping it off with pre-ground nutmeg have no idea what an atrocity they are committing or how much more they would be enjoying it if they followed the methods of the 1826 West Point cadets. However, with the resurrection of craft cocktails and all the 19th century recipes being dusted off, one can hope that real eggnog with real eggs and real booze will again be found on winter bar menus. So, so we're going to attempt a breakfast eggnog here. This is from the Savoy Cocktail Book. We noticed this one and were struck by how odd it seemed. Um, so the ingredients here are one fresh egg, one quarter curacao, three quarters brandy, one quarter fresh milk. Um, so the addition of curacao is rather odd. It's curacao obviously is an, an orange liqueur. Yeah, so I guess it'll just kind of be like a liquid orange custard. We'll see. We got going in here about a half an ounce of curacao. We're using Pierre Ferdinand dry curacao. Only the best. <laughs> and an ounce and a half of uh, E&J VSOP. And then we're going to add um, a half a cup of milk. So this is the breakfast, the breakfast egg. Yeah, shaking it up. Huh. It's a creamsicle. Yeah, it is basically just a creamsicle. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. A little more fun to drink. Yeah. <laughs> Orange Julius. Mm. It is a little lighter. Yeah, it's not bad. I can bad. see why this would, this would be a breakfast thing. Yep. Huh. It could be you know, orange juice. Drink yeah. this instead of orange juice in the right. morning. It'll... Like a mimosa? Yeah. <laughs> a little heavier, but... You, well, it's, it's your breakfast and your mimosa. Yeah. Actually, you know, it'd probably be better with Grand Marnier mm -hmm. instead of um, instead of the dry curacao. Right. Yeah. That would, that would pair with the brandy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we've had we've had the hot beer. Yep. The beer, the flip. Right? The what flip. Was that? That yeah, was it was, that was just an egg flip. Um, we had the. I saw I saw a reference to it in the Savoy cocktail book where they called it. I think it was the Savoy where they called it an ale flip. Hmm. Yeah. One of the one of the cocktail yep. books called it an ale flip. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So we've had the egg flip. We've had uh, Jerry Thomas's original eggnog recipe. Yep. We had the sherry version of that. Right. Um, we had the General Harrison's, and now we've had the breakfast. Right. So. So where do you rank? I that? would probably put the traditional eggnog with the brandy and mm -hmm. rum top. Then I'd probably put the hot beer. Um, I'd probably put this breakfast eggnog after that. Yep. Um, then the General Harrison's and the, the Sherry version would be last. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So there's our verdict. I'll post all the recipes that we tried out on the podcast website, chpodcast.com. You can also find photos, links to source materials, and more. Now, what about the safety of homemade eggnog? Well, anytime you're using raw eggs in a drink, there is some risk. Rates of salmonella are quite low in eggs, around 1 in 22,000 here in the US, but there is still some risk, so particularly if you have a compromised immune system, you might not want to take the risk. However, aging your eggnog can actually alleviate the risk of infection. Alcohol is toxic to bacteria, but won't kill it right away. However, over time, an eggnog with high enough ABV will kill the germs. Rebecca Lancefield was a prominent microbiologist at Rockefeller University. Born in 1895, she got a PhD from Columbia in 1925, and in 1961 became the first female president of the American Association of Immunologists. She also enjoyed aged eggnog and had a recipe that she made every year, a tradition continued by the Rockefeller University Department of Microbiology after her death. The recipe calls for the eggnog, which contains bourbon, rum, eggs, cream, and sugar, to be aged for two to three weeks in the fridge before serving. In honor of Lancefield, the microbiologists at Rockefeller University decided to test its safety by making it with eggs known to be contaminated with salmonella. 
The eggnog is around 20% alcohol by volume, and the researchers found that after three weeks of refrigerated aging, the eggnog was completely sterile. Aging also helps mellow out the taste. There are a lot of aged eggnog recipes out there. I'll include Dr. Lancefield's on the website. Key sources for this episode include James Agnew's book Eggnog Riot, David Wandrich's Imbibe, and Mark Will Weber's Mint Juleps with Teddy Roosevelt, The Complete History of Presidential Drinking. Now, if you've been following this podcast since it started, I know you haven't heard from me in quite a while, but you'll be hearing a lot more in the coming months. The next episode will be coming two weeks from today. It's an interview I taped with Boston College professor Hannah Griggs about Prohibition-era New Orleans and her project The Intemperance Archive. Tune in for that on Friday, January 6th. Also, for those of you in the vicinity of Providence, Rhode Island, I have an announcement. I'm going to be preparing a limited menu of historical-inspired cocktails every two weeks at Fortnite Wine Bar, a new establishment in downtown Providence. Follow Cocktail History on social media for announcements about that. I'm on Facebook, facebook.com slash cocktailhistory, and Twitter at cocktailhistpod. And you can also find these links at chpodcast.com. This past week, we did our first cocktail night, and much-aged eggnog was imbibed. Until next time, I'm Sam Eilertson. Our theme music was composed by Harry Aspinwall. Additional music this week borrowed from Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.org, as well as the U.S. Army's Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. Thanks so much to Kevin Parker for opening up his home and cocktail history library to me. Whether you're celebrating Christmas, Hanukkah, Solstice, or Festivus, make sure to enjoy some eggnog. And remember that unlike cocktails, history is something you can never have too much of. Thank you.